up to speed where we're at, what we're doing. This year we began, um, kind of a theme for our year was the story of God. What is the story of God? And obviously we could begin in Genesis. There's so many places we could begin. We thought it'd be good for our church to kind of go back and, and see like the birth of the nation of Israel, the first king. Uh, we want to look back at the prophets and kings and see how all of these stories, maybe we, we are familiar with, maybe we're not familiar with. The stories of the prophets and kings, how it's a foreshadow or a picture of the ultimate prophet, the ultimate king that will come, that David really creates a longing for the son of David, and that is Jesus the Messiah. And so it's been fun for us to kind of go through this book. We're in 1 Samuel 21, and chapter 16, we're finally introduced to David for the first time, that young shepherd boy from Bethlehem, kind of overlooked. He becomes that mighty warrior who slays Goliath. The people praise him. They love him. Saul becomes very bitter and very jealous in chapter 18. Chapter 19 and 20, like we, saw, uh, like we saw, that Saul was out to kill David. Jonathan and David are great friends. Jonathan is the son of Saul. He could be the next king. That David and Jonathan shouldn't be friends in theory, but they're best friends. They have like a friendship covenant they make three times. Um, and we see this unique relationship there. We just ended last week with Jonathan and David basically saying goodbye. They will, they will see each other one more time. But David now, here, here's where we begin in chapter 21. It kind of shifts focus. This is the start of David's exile. This is now David on the run. So you, you join us at a great week because this is now David, who is the, the anointed king. Like he's the soon-to-be king. He's the expectant king, but he's, on, he's the king on the margins. He's the king on the outside. He's the king who they're pursuing. Saul wants to kill him. He wants to end his life. He, he's done with David. Now David, right when we're introduced, he is alone at this moment in time. In chapter 22, we'll see him be joined with, you know, some other mighty men. They're not very mighty at first, but we'll see him be joined and we'll see kind of the story develop. Uh, it's, there's about 15 different stories uh, in, David, in the wilderness journey overall, uh, but there's, this is probably 10 years worth of stories, uh, maybe 10, 15 years worth of stories. So that's the idea. David's on the run. Here's what we see to me today, and this is what we're going to look at. We're going to look at two chapters, sorry, two chapters. I know you can handle it. Chapter 21 and 22. You can do it. I know we can. We've done it before. We're going to get two chapters, and here's what we're going to see. Um, we're going to see lessons in exile. There are four stories we're going to read about. There are four lessons, and there are five psalms David writes over these stories. Possibly more, but we're confident of five psalms that he wrote. So there's four stories, four lessons, five psalms. And I love this because we get a little picture or journal into the soul of David through these psalms. So we're in First Samuel 21. Why don't we just do this? Let's pray. Let's pray before, we're not going to read two chapters right now. So let's pray, and uh, we'll look at this more in depth. Cool? Yes, you guys ready? I'm glad you're here. Let's do it. Father, we just want to say thank you. Even as we just sung, you are wonderful. That Christ, you are risen. You are Lord of all. God, we would miss the point if we're just studying David's life and not see you, Jesus. That Jesus, all scripture, all scripture refers to you. Lord, we look to you. We need you. God, I ask that we would learn from these stories, from David's failures even along the way, his mistakes along the way, where he gets it right, how he puts his trust in you. Lord, we ask that you'd give us insight through the Psalms where the story kind of lacks maybe clarity or points. God, I pray that you'd bring clarity through what David writes, what he shows us in the Psalms. Lord, that you just bring this together. Um, we need you, Lord. We ask that we would learn from lessons in exile. When we feel lonely, when we wonder, God, where are you? When maybe we're in a dry spot spiritually, we thank you for the lessons we see here today. And uh, God, I just pray for anyone who does feel dry or barren or lonely, God, that you'd refresh them, 
that the same lessons you revealed to David, you would reveal to us today. And uh, we just thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. All right, so David's on the run. David is in exile. King Saul is pursuing him, and he's running away. Now, I don't know if you've ever been on the run, like probably not in a literal, you know, fugitive type of way. Uh, we used to play this game in high school, kind of like a giant manhunt game um, in California. It was really fun. My junior, senior year, friends would get together, and here was the idea of the game. Uh, we'd have to start at point A and have to get to point B, and you have one group who had to get to point B who were on, like, on foot, they could only go there on foot, couldn't use your cell phones. Cell phones didn't really have maps anyways back then. But you couldn't really use your cell phones. And the other group was allowed to chase you in cars. All right, and this is the game we do. We, like, we, do, we kind of start like a two-mile, like start A, destination B is two miles away, you're on foot, it's going to take a while. It was chaos. Uh, I remember we would start in a certain part of the city, have to get to point B. Uh, we got like a three-minute head start. We're running through neighborhoods. Cars are chasing us at night. Headlights are bright. We jump into neighbor's yards and like run away. It was, yeah, this is what Christians do for fun. Um, this is what we did in high school. And I just remember like seeing other groups of people, like we'd make eye contact, like don't go down that alley. There's a car waiting. Like you just run there. It was insane. Neighbors are calling the police. It was so much fun. Um, and that was a fake game. Like that wasn't, like we just did that for fun. That was not really being chased, but just the adrenaline rush, all the things that came from when the car captures you and drags you in the car. I mean, it was terrifying. That's the closest thing I think to experiencing this idea of being on the run. Um, obviously that's fairy tale, that's fantasy, that's not real. David is truly on the run. I mean, I can't imagine like uh, on the run alone, and this isn't a game, like they're out to get his life. Like they're out to end David. And everything in this exile, like all the stories we're going to read today, there's a lot of lessons he learned. David did make some mistakes along the way. We're going to look at that. But he learned a lot of lessons along the way. And I love this because God is forming David in exile. Listen, God forms our character so often when we feel alone, when we feel isolated, when we feel like we're in exile. David's going to write some of those famous psalms, some of the most well-known psalms while he's in exile, while he's in the cave, while he does some ridiculous things, to be honest. And David's going to have some wonderful lessons learned. I love what Alan Redpath says about this. He says, in the development of Christian character, there sometimes comes moments when darkness seems to fall, the sun seems to set, and to the man himself, everything seems lost. Other people observing his life wonder if he is sinking beyond all hope of recovery. It is to such a moment in David's life that we now come. This is what you wonder, like, how is he going to respond to this? What's going to come out of him? It seems like all hope is lost. His best friend and him are separated. He's on the run. There's an army after him, essentially. And we're going to see David make some mistakes along the way, learn along the way. And there's just some lessons in exile that we want to look at. I'll throw this up here so you can see this. But many, many, many Psalms are written during this time. Um, we'll see Psalm 7, 11 through 13, 16 through 18. You can see all the rest. A lot of Psalms were written during this time of David fleeing. And so we get some insight into his soul what's going on. I mean, I love this because you kind of have access to his journal, like his thoughts. You do think throughout history, like we have some journals of people during very pivotal moments. And it's very interesting to read like their journals on what was happening in that exact moment. There's some people we don't have their journals in history. I'm like, I really wish we had their journal, like what was going on in their mind during this time. The Psalms are essentially, yes, these praise and worship songs essentially, but this is almost also insight into David and his soul, what's going on. So, be really clear, in chapter 21 and 22, we're going to see four stories. We're going to learn four lessons, and there's five psalms that David writes through this. Cool? So let's look at the first one. Here's how we're going to break this down today um, in the story form. We're going to see the bread, the next story, the insanity, uh, the third, the cave, and number four, the survivor. These are kind of the four stories we see. 
In these stories, we see what David writes and, and really shows us. We see that God provides, God pardons, God protects, and God promises. That's what we kind of learn from the Psalms uh, as we walk through this. Cool? Yes? All right, let's go. First one, chapter 21, verse 1. Let's read the story of the bread. You might know this story. Chapter 21, it says, Then David, so he just left Jonathan. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, uh, why are you alone and no one with you? That's not normal. And David said to Ahimelech, the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is the holy bread, the bread that was in the temple, the bread of presence. If the young men have kept themselves from the women, and David answered the priest, he says, truly, women have kept, uh, been kept from us as always. And when I go on ex- expedition, the vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will these vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread, but the bread of presence which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. I'll explain that more. Verse seven. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg, the Edomite. That means an offspring, an offspring of, Saul, of Esau. The chief of Saul's herdsmen. We'll come back to Doeg in chapter 22. It mentions him because it's a big part of him in 22. Verse eight. Then David said to Ahimelech, then have you not here spear or sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, like the sword you struck down. Behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod, the priest's garments. If you will take that, take it. For there is none but that here. And David said, there is none like that. Give it to me. All right. David's on the run. He's alone. He meets uh, Ahimelech, the priest. He's in like that tabernacle. Remember, there's no temple, like a like, physical temple that's built yet. He's in the tabernacle area. He goes to him. Ahimelech is freaking out going, why are you here? This is not normal. Like, why are you alone? Ah, I'm supposed to meet some men here. The king has sent me on business. That is a lie. Uh, some people say David lied to pre- protect Ahimelech so that if the king, if King Saul were to look for him, which we'll see that happen, he truly said, well, this is what David told me. Like, so he lied maybe to protect, protect him, maybe not. I've seen some argue that said, no, the king has charged me, not referring to Saul, but King God. So like, David did not lie. I don't know about that one. I think he did lie. But anyways, there, David, he goes, he's Ahimelech, he's saying, the king has sent me, I'm meeting some young men. What do you have? I have some bread. Awesome. What do you have? I have uh, the Goliath sword. Awesome. Give me that too. Now here's what we see. This is a unique story, right? David's about to eat the bread of presence. He's about to eat the bread that came out of the holy place. This was not for anyone but the sons of Aaron to eat. The bread would stay there, and on the Sabbath day, they would, the priests would eat the bread, and they'd bring out new fresh bread. There would be 12 loaves on this like golden table, and this bread of presence, obviously, it speaks of the idea that God met their needs in the wilderness. The 12 breads, speaking of the 12 tribes, it's how God met Moses face to face, and it's like, basically, I will meet your needs. I'll fulfill you. I'm that bread. I'm going to meet your needs through the bread. David's allowed to eat the bread. There's not, he doesn't die. Like we see so often, maybe when someone does some sort of priestly duty, like they shouldn't do, they either get filled with leprosy or they die. Uh, God allows this. This story is mentioned, if you remember, three times in the New Testament. In the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, this story is mentioned. We'll have the verses up here. But you see the story mentioned. And in this story, 
Jesus and the disciples, if you remember, they're going to the grains field. They grab the, the heads of the grain. They're eating it on the Sabbath day. And they're going, Jesus, you're breaking the law. What are you doing? And Jesus refers back to the story. Be like, hey, David broke the law. How much more the son of David, in a sense? And you're like, he broke the law? He sinned? What is that? Here's the idea. The spirit of the law versus, you could say, the letter of the law is kind of being communicated here. The letter of the law, yes, it's broken. But there's your brother in need. Like your brother's in need. What do you do? What's the, what's the spirit of the law? Essentially, the law is summarized by love God and love others, love everyone. That's like the spirit, of, like the law could be fulfilled in those two things. Love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love each other. And really, the spirit of the law is saying David's in need. There is this freedom to give him this bread. Also, the idea is he is the anointed king. And this is kind of creating this longing for the true anointed king who would do a very similar thing, obviously, in the story, Jesus who would look back to the story. And so really this story is a foreshadow or you could say of like future things with Jesus to come on the scene and be like, you've missed the point of the law. You've missed the point. You, you've carried the letter of the law. Like sure, according to Leviticus 24, no one could eat the bread except the priests. Why does God allow this? Because we see really the spirit of the law being fulfilled. It creates this idea that maybe we've misinterpreted the law too. Maybe we've missed the big point of the law. Let me point out this way. David Heath, an author says, so how is the holy bread that has been reserved only for priests an appropriate meal for David? Technically, it is not. It is an inappropriate meal. But in the context of 1 Samuel, this story reinforces the divine favor, anointing, and blessing of David. David experiences provision and fullness at Nob. So this, he's saying this, it's just it's showing forward how he basically fulfills this, how uh, you see ultimately it was uh, this provision that God would provide for him. Tim Chester says, sometimes keeping the spirit of the law involved breaking the letter of the law. This was a far cry from situational ethics or relativism because the spirit of the law remains sovereign. Mercy triumphed over judgment. Jesus himself comments on the story with these words. This is how Jesus ended Matthew 12. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. And he's saying this is the heart of the law, mercy. This is the heart of the law, that we love those in need. And so this story is showing us a future story. David has the freedom to eat of this bread. He's not cursed with leprosy. He doesn't die on the spot. But we see how it's creating with us a pattern for the Messiah who is to come. Listen, this passage sets a pattern for the coming Messiah. The idea that I want to like leave is Jesus is the bread of presence. This, this bread on the temple, in the tabernacle, eventually in the temple, this idea of these 12 loaves, this, this bread, it's that God will meet your needs. Jesus came on the scene and said, I'm the bread of life. Bread won't satisfy you, but I will satisfy you. You're hungry, I can fill you. I'm that bread of presence. I'm the one who meets you face to face. God met Moses face to face, but now it's me. I've come on the scene. I'm God in the flesh. I meet you face to face. I'm the bread of presence. I can fulfill your needs. This idea of David now, just right away going, like, again, where does David go? The first place he goes to on the run, which is beautiful to me, is the tabernacle. The first place he goes is to the temple. He goes to the house of God. David obviously had an inclination towards the house of God. He's like, I'm gonna run, this is all, I can, all I know is this, I'm gonna run to the house of God there might be something for me at the house of God. What a beautiful thought. Even though he lies, even though he messes up, he just goes, I don't know where else to go, but I'm gonna go to the house of God. I said, that's good, that's good. It's a good place to start. Uh, he lies along the way. I don't encourage that. But here's what I see God do. God's like, you have needs, I'm gonna meet your needs. I'm a God who provides. I'm a God who's gonna send my son on the scene who will be the bread of presence, who will also meet your needs. Ultimately, we see that God provides for David in his greatest need. That's what we see here. I love what Leon Morris says. He says, human need must not be subject to barren legalism. 
We can't miss the point. There's a human need. God's like, of course I'm going to meet that need for you, David. Now, what's really interesting in this story, we introduce in verse 7, it kind of breaks up the story. This guy named Doeg, he's essentially a spy, a spy for Saul. He's watching this. He's going to twist the story a bit later in tw- chapter 22 to, to uh, King Saul. He's going to twist the story. He's going to make Ahimelech look even worse. And we're going to see just a crazy slaughter happen. So that's why it's like referencing Doeg. David actually, we'll look at it later, but David actually writes a psalm about this guy Doeg. So he's not some minor character. He's literally so furious at, at Doeg. You know, one of those Psalms where David just kind of vents his emotions. We're going to read that. Uh, it's about Doeg. But we'll get to that in chapter 22. So then David, he goes, he also takes the sword of Goliath, right? So he slayed Goliath. He has bread. He has a sword. And now here's what's really interesting. He's, we're going to see in verse 10, he's going to take the sword of Goliath. Remember, Goliath is from Gath. He's going to go to Gath. He's going to take the sword of the one he just killed. And he's going to bring it back to the city where the guy's from. Um, that's pretty bold. We'll see that in a second. The point of this, though, and I just want to point out because I don't want to move on. The di- first lesson we see with David in the wilderness, in exile, he's like, well, God provides. Whether it's through the bread or the sword, God met my needs. And there's something I think that we have to experience in exile. One of the things we have to learn, have to see, is that God does provide. If you feel alone, if you feel lonely, if you feel isolated, know this, that we serve a God who does provide. So it's so important, this story, again, like it's mentioned three times in the New Testament. That means it's an important moment. And God is saying, no, 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 don't miss the point. I'm a God who provides. I'm a God who cares for human need. You think they're breaking the Sabbath, you miss the spirit of the law. I'm a God who provides in the moments of crisis. That's the first lesson he learns. Number two, uh, we're going to see the insanity. David literally has to pretend to lose his mind. And we're going to see how God pardons. God sets him free. So let's keep reading. Number two, uh, the insanity. Oh, the insanity. Verse 10. Here's what it says. David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So David changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands, and made marks on the doors of the gate, and let his spittle run down his beard. I like that word, spittle. Spits running down his beard. If you have a beard and you've ever had spit down your beard, it's really gross. Um, The spittle ran down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? The story ends there. He's going to move on to another city right after this. All right, this is a weird story, okay? Um, there's actually two psalms written about the story. Now, I, before we get to those psalms, this is interesting. David's like, maybe, maybe my enemy, the king, King Achish, he's the king of the Philistines, king of the area of Gath specifically, where Goliath is from. I'll bring the sword of Goliath to the city. Again, very bold. I'll bring it to the city. I'm basically going to seek him out for help. And they're like, we know you. You're the one they sing songs about. Like, why are you alone? What's going on? And David's like, oh my gosh, they, they might want to kill. Like, again, I'm just, I'm in front of them with Goliath's sword. Like, this could all end here. So he has to like pretend to be crazy, act insane. Like, get this man out of my presence. And that's how he lives. Really interesting story. I want to encourage you first and foremost, I don't know if David's mindset was kind of like that ancient proverb, like uh, an enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's possibly what he's doing. Like, okay, this guy's an enemy of King Saul. He might be my friend. It is interesting in David's journey I think we see this mistake being made that he's like, how can I lean on someone or something else? How can I turn to the enemy for help? Um, this is something where I don't believe David's making the best judgment call in this moment. He's making this, I think, out of fear as we see. I see that we too can make bad judgments calls out of just fear. 
we're kind of going, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to turn. I guess I'll turn to my enemy. I'll say this. Learn from David. Don't turn your enemy in moment of crisis. Don't turn your enemy in moment of need. Thankfully, God pardons him. God sets him free. You might think, well, how did God do that? Like, I thought David acted crazy that dismissed him. David recognizes it wasn't his craziness that saved him. It was God that saved him. So there's two Psalms in this specifically pointed out, Psalm 34 and Psalm 56. So let me just put this up here. In Psalm 56, notice this. The, the kind of the tone or before the Psalms begins, there's always like some sort of reference to when it was written or how it was written. Psalm 56 says this, a miktam of David, it's like a certain way of singing the Psalm, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. So this Psalm, Psalm 56, when the Philistines seized him in Gath, this is where he is, he's in Gath. David wrote this Psalm either right during this time, maybe in prison, maybe in a jail cell, maybe right after, but we have like the, the context to this. So I want you to see this because we kind of get insight into David's thinking and soul. I'll put up a few verses here. Psalm 56, uh, let's just look at verse eight. David says, you have, ke- you have kept count of my tossings. That word means wanderings. He said, God, you've kept count of it when I've wandered, when I've strayed. He knows he's wandering. He, he knows he made a bad mistake by going uh, to King Achish. You've kept count of my wanderings. But he says in verse nine, this I know that God is for me. Verse 13, for you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling. David is reflecting in this moment and just going, it wasn't my craziness that saved me. This I know, you've saved me. You set me free. You pardoned me. God, I, I literally made a terrible mistake. Thankfully, you stepped in. I would encourage you to read Psalm 56 as a whole. It's really fun to kind of see these Psalms during these kind of obscure stories, like what's the point, what's going on? But you see David going, I know I've blown it. You've kept count of my wanderings. I've wandered from you. Isn't it great to know that when you wander or when you fail, God is still so good that he will pardon you. (laughs) That if you come to him and say, Lord, I've wandered, he's like, I know. And I'll also set you free and I'll save you. I'm the one who will deliver you from that. David's recognizing, going, God, you've delivered me. Psalm 34, which is one of my favorite psalms, was also written during this time. So we'll just kind of jump to that. You can turn there if you like. But Psalm 34, here's how it begins, like the top again. It says, uh, Psalm 34 of David, when he changed his behavior before Ahimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. So this is, uh, this is a psalm that we're going to see where he changed his behavior and he sends him out. Now, Psalm 34, look at verse 1. Psalm 34, verse 1, it says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. He says um, in verse 3, or verse 4, he says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Verse 6, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. He's reflecting on this moment in Psalm 34, and he's like, listen, this poor man cried out, and the Lord, you delivered him. I love, again, verse one, I said it wrong, but he says, I sought the Lord and he heard me. He delivered me from all my fears. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. He's basically recounting this moment and he's like, look how the Lord is so faithful to answer. When I read Psalm 34, the first few times, like just growing up, I thought David probably wrote this like in the palace or when he was a shepherd. He's like, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. But he, he said that after this crazy, insane moment. He didn't say this when times were good. He said this when he realized he made a terrible mistake. He's like, oh Lord, I sought you and you heard me. You delivered me. Again, verse six, this poor man cried, the Lord heard him and delivered him from all of his troubles. Verse 19, he says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. Verse 22, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. 
If you notice what he's pointing out, he says, Lord, you redeem, you deliver. God, I acted, I made an insane, foolish choice going to my enemy and you delivered me. All I want to point out in this, in this little weird story that's five verses, he goes to his enemy for help. In the middle of that moment, he's like, I made a terrible choice. If you ever in the middle of like sin, like you made a mistake, have you ever hit you like, oh my gosh, I've made a terrible choice. And you're like, it's like you're kind of sitting in the moment like, oh no, what did I do? He's sitting in that moment. The Lord delivers him and he goes, Lord, thank you that despite my terrible judgment, despite me going to my enemy, you delivered me. You saw that. You set me free. Here's a second lesson David learned. God pardons. Despite your mistakes, despite what you've done, if you go to him, if you turn to him, if you seek him, like I sought the Lord, he heard me. I sought him, he heard me. He delivered me from all my fears. There's something in Psalm 34 that gives insight into his soul. He, he knew it wasn't his craziness that delivered him. He's like, Lord, it was you who delivered me. Thank you for that. Listen, God provides, God pardons, and we'll keep going in our story, chapter 22. Number three, we're gonna see the cave. He sees how God protects, all right? So two Psalms he wrote essentially. Let's look at number three. The cave, chapter 22, verse one, very interesting. So he right away, he leaves, he departed from there. And he escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to David. That's a great group. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. Let's just stop there. Uh, we're told that he goes to the cave of Adullam. In this cave, a lot happened. This is probably the lowest point, I would say, of David's exile. He's essentially going to the cave. It's before the men gather. He goes to the cave of Adullam, and he's at a really low point. He's like, I've lied to the priest. It's going to eventually take his own, the priest is going to lead to his death. David's bad choice. He acknowledges it. I've lied to the priest. I went to my enemy. I'm in a cave alone. And David's just at a really, really low point. And here's what he, he sees, ultimately. In this cave, when he's at his lowest point, he sees that, God, you are the one who protects me. I want us to see this in Psalm 142. So if you would turn to Psalm 142, but we, we see that David writes this psalm in this cave. And again, this is so important. I feel like for me, if I were not to teach this and not give you the psalms, it would not make sense. So Psalm 142, turn there. Here's what David says, just as a whole. Psalm 142, only seven verses. If you read at the top, it says, a mascal of David when he was in the cave, it's a prayer. So here's David's prayer in the cave. He's in the cave of Adullam. He's praying to God. Imagine him being alone, being chased. Verse one, he says, with my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see, there is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. Do you hear where he's at? This is the lowest point. There's no refuge. No one cares for my soul. But verse five, I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutions, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. When you see this, he's like, I have no one. No one cares. No one's with me. I have no refuge. And then verse five, that is that shift. He's like, but you are my refuge. See, he's in this cave. David hits this moment. I've been running to the wrong things. I wanted a sword from my enemy, from Goliath. I wanted that. I needed something. I ran to my, my actual enemy. 
And he goes, I have no one. God, I have no one. No one cares for me. And he goes, oh wait, you're my refuge. See, this, this cave moment was so important for David. I mean, you see Psalm 142 comes from this psalm. We're gonna see Psalm 57 come from this psalm. But it's a very critical moment where God is like refining. Like he brought him to his lowest point so that he could eventually reveal to him, strengthen him, show him you're not alone. I'm gonna provide men for you. 400 men are about to be gathered to him at that cave. So he's alone. I believe it's before those men show up. God's like, yes, you get it. Like you, you can't do anything without me. Now that you're at your lowest point, like let me show you, let me surround you with 400 men. But let me point this out. I love what uh, Charles or Chuck Swindoll said. He says, David has been brought to the place where God can truly begin to shape him and use him. When the sovereign God brings us to nothing, it is to reroute our lives, not to end them. Do you believe that? When God has brought us to the point of nothing, it's to reroute our lives. It's not so that he can just end them. Sometimes it feels like it's over. I can't imagine being David in this cave to think it's over. Like literally, I've also now made the Philistines know that I'm alone. I'm weak and vulnerable in that way. Saul's after me. Jonathan's not with me. What am I going to do? And he realized, wait a second. I've gone to everything and anyone other than you, oh God. You are my refuge. And there's like this turning point in the cave. You see him pray that in Psalm 142 verse 5. There's this tor- turning point, but Lord, you are my refuge. I've been missing the point. Maybe you've been missing the point. Maybe you've been turning to something or someone else or some drink or some moment or some experience and you're kind of hitting those lows still. You're going, God, why do I still feel these crazy lows? And you go, oh, wait, I've been running to other things as my refuge, but you are my refuge. I need to run to you in this moment. I've been running to everything and anything else other than you, but no, Lord, now I'm going to run to you. This is what David's like determining in his heart. And then that's verse one. So then verse two, God surrounds him with 400 men. Now I want to read actually verse Psalm 57. So one more Psalm. This is what we're down on four psalms now. Psalm 57. We said David wrote another psalm about this moment. Psalm 57, we'll put up here. It says, a mictam of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. You see that? Psalm 57. So he wrote another psalm in this cave. All right, Psalm 57. I'll just read verse one through three. Here's what David says in the cave. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you, my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge. Till the storms of destructions pass by, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. Do you see this turning point that happens in the cave? In the cave at his lowest, he's like, God, you will save me. You're my refuge. You're my refuge over and over again. I, I point out Psalm 57. I point out Psalm 142 just for us to see like this moment, this like change in David's heart. God, I'm gonna run to you now. I'm done. I am done. So I love what happens. In verse two, God brings him 400 men. Can we just read again verse two? Because this is crazy to me. How does it describe these 400 men? Verse two, it says, everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was in bitter and soul gathered to him. It's like, thank you, God. You brought these 400 distressed, bitter, in debt men. That is great. I, I do love this. This is such a picture of the kingdom, right? When you think about the kingdom of God, this is such a picture of the kingdom. When you think about the disciples Jesus chose, it's like, this is, defines them. The ones in distress, the ones in debt, the ones bitter in soul, the ones who are arguing nonstop about who's the greatest. Like the idea that like, the kingdom of God is so this way. The, it's crazy because these 400 men, we're gonna lead, read later in 2 Samuel, I think 23, that these 400 men will be called eventually the 400 like mighty men of David. Eventually it's the 600. But this, these 400 distressed, in debt, bitter soul men become mighty men. How? By hanging out with David. (laughs) 
the idea is this, it's so true. We have a greater than David that we run to. We're in bitter, we're in debt, we're in distress, we run to him, and we're probably all that way. And I love it. When you spend time with Jesus, you become like Jesus. That you too can become mighty men, mighty women of God, that we don't have to stay that way. They, they start off this way, but eventually they're gonna be described as mighty men of David. That is one of the coolest thoughts to me. Is this not the kingdom of God? First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.26, let's read it. I know you know it. But he says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. I love this. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He's like, do you not get this? It's so that you can't boast in yourself. You know, look, look, I'm a mighty man of God. No, no, no. You are in distress, in debt, and bitter of soul. God made you into that. God made you into who you are. Second Corinthians 3.18 talks about this veil and spending time with Jesus. And when you see him, you'll be like him. And this idea of like, the more you're with Jesus, the more you'll become like Jesus. It is such a beautiful thing. I think this so does define us. Know, know what I love though too? I love that David just welcomes these guys in. Again, the kingdom of God is like, we, we know that's so different than the way the world operates. It's so different. Because I think if Jesus were choosing the 12 disciples, it's like, how do I choose the smartest, wealthiest, most profound, the most influential? He doesn't. He has the fishermen, the tax collectors, the, the ones that incite violence on the government of Rome. It's crazy when you read about the disciples that Jesus chooses. The only one that kind of makes sense is Judas Iscariot because Judas held the money back. He's from Iscariot, a wealthy town. I love it when author says like, Judas is probably the only one who wouldn't betray Jesus according to the disciples, but yet he's the one who does. The, the idea is that he's the only one who might be qualified and that maybe is his biggest disqualification. The idea is this, when you come to Jesus, there should be this idea. I don't care how wealthy you are, how smart you are, how intelligent you are, how, how successful you are. Come to Jesus like 1 Corinthians 1. I am the foolish things of the world, God. Like come to Jesus and say, the wisdom of man is foolishness to God. I would rather come just saying, Lord, like I'd rather come as a disciple, a learner, than come with like, look at all the things I have to offer God. Like, no, no. God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. This is like the heart of the kingdom. This is the heart of the gospel. David has these 400 in distress men. He's going to turn them into mighty men of God. I would say this, the kingdom of God is available to you and to me. I, I love this. It's not that good people are in and the bad people are out. It's that the humble are in and the proud are out. The idea of the kingdom of God being invited in is just saying, are you humble? Are you humble? The humble are in, the proud are out. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James 4, 6. He resists the proud. Because it's crazy to think, who does God resist? God does resist some people. Who? The proud. I don't need him. I'm good. I have everything going for me. But he's like, come on in distressed, in debt, bitter of soul. Welcome! This is the kingdom of God. So beautiful. I want to boast in my weakness that Christ may be made strong and glorified. I want to boast in my foolishness that the wisdom of God may be seen. This is what's happening with, with David. This is what's happening with the kingdom. He's in the cave. He's writing Psalm 142. He's writing Psalm 57. He's going, I've sought refuge in everything else, but he makes it really clear, God, you're my refuge. I've ran to the wrong things. The third lesson David learns is God protects. God protects. I want to keep reading verse three and four kind of under this header, but let's keep reading. It says, David, verse three, David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab. And they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. 
Then the prophet Gad said to David, do not remain in the stronghold, depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Herath. Really quick, just that little side story. He goes to the king of Moab. If you remember, who was David's great grandma? Do you guys remember? There's a book of the Bible. Ruth. David's great grandma was uh, Ruth. Where is she from? Moab. He's basically going back to some of his home roots. Uh, you know, his dad being the, the grandson of Ruth. He goes to Moab. He's like, will you take care of my parents for me? I got to figure out what the Lord's doing. He goes to a stronghold. This prophet Gad comes to him and says, don't stray, stay in the stronghold. Go into the wilderness. Uh, what is interesting about this, we'll see Gad spoken of later. He, Gad seems to be a, really, a true prophet of God who speaks over David again in a later time. So he goes from the cave to a stronghold to the wilderness. Now verse six, here's what we see. This next story is a longer story. We're going to all of it and we'll end here. But we're going to see number four, the survivor, this lone survivor from this crazy story. There's one survivor and we're see that God has a promise. So uh, last thing, number four is this, the survivor God promises. Let me read the story. It'll make sense in just a second. Verse six. So David, he's departed. He went to the forest or the wilderness of Herath. Verse six. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him, Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand. And all his servants were standing about him. So all of Saul's servants were with him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Here now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? He's making vain promises. That all of you who have conspired against me, no one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse, none of you is sorry for me <laughs> or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait uh, as at this day. He's like, all of you have been against me. You knew about my son, Jonathan and David. Verse nine, then, then answered Doeg, here's Doeg from 21 verse seven, here's Doeg. Then answered Doeg, the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. He says, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahiatam. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions. And he gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahiatam, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahiatub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, David, and that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he has risen against me? You probably didn't do that last part. To lie in wait as at this day. Then Ahimelech answered the king. He says, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? He's kind of doing what Jonathan does. Who's been as good to you as David? Who is the king's son-in-law? He's your son-in-law. What are you doing? And captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house. Is today the first time that I inquired of God for him? No, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. Remember, David lied to him. Verse 16, and the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech. You and your, all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, so he says to his guards, turn and kill the priest of the Lord because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he had fled and did not disclose it to me. But listen to this. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. They're not even listening to their own king. Verse 18. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. In Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox and donkey and sheep, and he put to the sword. Verse 20. 
But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahiatab, one of the priests named Abathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abathar told David that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. And David said to Abathar, I knew on that day when Dog the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. He's like, this is my fault. Verse 23, stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safekeeping. The story's fascinating. I know it's long. Good job for reading it with me. I'm proud of you guys. The, th- the thing that's crazy about the story, obviously, you see Saul talking to his servants. He goes, all of you knew about what was going on between Jonathan and David. None of you told me. Okay, he hears about what happens with Ahimelech. He's like, bring him to me. The servants are w- willing to listen to Saul. So he goes, basically, Doeg, you, d- you do this. You kill him. Doeg is an Edomite. The reason why I think it keeps pointing that out, an Edomite is one of the sons of Esau. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob, you know, um, and Jacob and Esau. Esau, from his like, bloodline came the, the Edomites. The Edomites were those who would not let the nation of Israel, when they're wandering through the wilderness, walk through their land for safety, and they're cursed. The Edomites and the Israelites did not have a great relationship. I'm very confused why an Edomite is like on the inner circle of Saul. Maybe he's pretending to be like, you know, converted to Judaism in a sense, or converted to serving King Saul. But either way, you have Esau the Edomite, who's like, oh, I would love to kill some Jews. I'll kill them, right? So he's like, I'll kill them. Yeah, he kills 85 priests, goes after the town, it's just a, a, it's just a giant bloodbath, a slaughter, a little mini genocide in that town. It's insane. David is furious, obviously, at Doeg. David actually takes ownership and goes, oh, it's because I went to him. because I went to him, this happened. But David is furious at the wicked. He's furious at Doeg. And I actually want to pull up the psalm because before we move on to the point, I want to see the psalm that David writes. He writes a psalm about Doeg. If you've ever read this psalm, you're like, what is the context? This is the context. It's Psalm chapter 52. Listen to this, Psalm 52. It says, a misgal of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. So this is that moment, Psalm 52. This is what David now writes in response. So like, again, feel his fury, feel his rage, kind of feel what's going on. Uh, we'll read in Psalm uh, 52, verse one. It says, David writes, why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Think about, uh, again, Doeg, Doeg here. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. Listen to this, but, here's the change, but God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He'll root you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him saying, see the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. In this psalm, you see his harping, and there's more, but in this psalm, you see his harping poured out. He's like, you deceitful man, you liar. You love wealth, you love riches, you love prosperity. You've not taken refuge in God. And he promises, God will break you down forever. God will break you down. I was talking to a friend about this recently, because I just want you to, to, maybe you've felt this before, but a friend who's serving the Lord, walking with the Lord, I believe just in a really difficult season, and looking around at people who maybe hurt him, I've not been walking with the Lord and going, I feel in a sense like David, why do the wicked prosper? Like, why is it that my life seems to be falling apart, but the wicked prosper? What is going on here? It seems like they have success. I mean, Doeg, I mean, think about that. The righteous are dead. The priests are dead. The town dead. Why does it appear that the righteous suffer, the evil prosper? And basically David is saying, ultimately, ultimately God will cut him down. Ultimately, even though from the our outward vantage point, it looks like the wicked might prosper. They will be cut down. 
ultimately the righteous, the ones who've given themselves over to the Lord, they will prosper. God will redeem. God will resurrect. God will make all things new. It might not look very good on this side of eternity, but you need to get a bigger perspective and stand back, and the wicked will not always prosper. And there is almost this thing going on with David. He's so furious. He's like, I don't get it. He goes, but you know, I, here's what I know. I know God will cut him down. And here's what he promises. The one priest that escapes, the one priest of Ahimelech, who actually brings the ephod with him. The ephod has the Urim and the Thummim. That was how the priest would kind of seek out the will of God. Like that is not under Saul's control. It's now under this priest's control and he brought to David. And that's now with David and Ahimelech. It's amazing. Or Ahimelech's son. And he goes to him and he's with him. And he goes, and listen, I will keep you safe. Listen, he wants my life. He wants your life, but I'm going to keep you safe. He will come to destruction. We read in Psalm 52. He will be cut down. I will keep you safe. This is what I promise. I promise the wicked will face justice, and I promise I'm going to keep you safe. There will be safekeeping. This is what David is walking through as he writes Psalm 52, and he's just walking with the Lord in this way. He's, he's, he's just trying to process what's going on here. And I think there is something where I think I can, and maybe you can at different points in time, like, why do the wicked prosper? Like, why does Doeg just get off scot-free? Like, what, what happens here? David has to have a bigger, bigger vantage point. He goes, no, he won't. He won't. And God will keep us safe. And I promise you this. I promise you this. With me, there'll be safekeeping. See, I love this because we too have a king who's on the margins like David. I really do want you to see, think about, think about David. He's on the run. He has this group of men around him. They're not the best group. They're in distress. They're in debt. They're bitter of soul. He has nowhere to lay his head. I mean, this story of exile obviously so clearly to me speaks of Jesus where he goes, foxes have holes, birds have nests. The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And you know what? There's an enemy out to get me. I have this ragtag group around me. And he goes, but with me, there will be safekeeping. Hey, if they've hated me, David says they're going to hate you. Jesus says the hey, same thing. If they've hated me, they're going to hate you. And I want to point this out before it just ends with like, he's like, welcome to church. Isn't that sad? Like, that's the message I'm giving you. If they hated Jesus, they're going to hate you. You're like, wow, I'm so glad I came to the exchange. But hear me out. <laughs> hear me out. John 15, listen to what Jesus says. Listen to this. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you're of the world, the world will love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. There's a sense like you know you're doing it right when the world doesn't necessarily love you or love what you stand for. You know if they hated Jesus, they're going to hate you also. But I love this. In that same message, because keep in mind, John 15, 16, 17, it's one big moment. In John 16, Jesus would go on to say, in the world you, have, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. There is this promise, if they hate you, they're going to hate me, but take heart, because I have overcome the world. And if I've overcome the world, you too will overcome. With me, there is safekeeping, verse 23. This David obviously reflects like, man, when you feel on the run, the world is out to get you, or maybe nothing's going your way. And he goes, where do you run to? Run, he goes, run to David. And he goes, with me, there'll be safekeeping. Listen, there is this idea for us that we run to the greater than David, the son of David, Jesus. And if they hated him, they'll hate us. But be of good cheer, take heart. He has overcome the world. There's a side of this where, listen, God protects, but God promises this. If I have overcome, you too will overcome. The wicked will not always prosper. Know this, with me, there is safekeeping. Listen, that you can run to Jesus. I love this story because you have a God, you have a king who's on the run and enemies out to get him. He has nowhere to lay his head. He's kind of going from place to place. He's learning these lessons. He has some ragtag men around him. 
and this speaks ultimately, I do believe, of our Jesus. He's like, it doesn't seem like he's the king. It doesn't seem like David's the king. I mean, everything outwardly, it's like, this, this can't be the king. King David? Like, this can't be the guy. And I think that's why so many people struggle with Jesus. This can't be the guy. How could Jesus be the guy? I mean, he's, he's homeless. He has just like poor people following him around. And the idea is like, yes, but this is the true king. This is the true king. And guess what? David will rule and reign from Jerusalem. And so too, Jesus will rule and reign from, from Jerusalem. It does not look like that now, but it will. It does not look like he is the king of kings, but he, he is the king of kings. And the world that says, I don't get this Jesus thing. This guy who's crucified, that's your king? Yeah, that's my king. But David too, in this moment, doesn't look like he's very kingly. Doesn't look like he's going to rule and reign, but he will. It doesn't look like that yet, but he will. We're in that moment still, the already not yet. Where the kingdom of God is here, but it's not yet here. That kingdom of God is here, but it's not fully yet. And it's beautiful because we know that he too will rule and reign. The world hates you, it's going to hate, the world hated him, it's going to hate us also. Run to him, he overcame the world. Yes, amen. Here's the, listen, we'll jump more into this, but the lessons we see right away. God, you provide. God, you pardon me. God, you protect me, you're my refuge. And God, you promise with you their safekeeping. Can we just go to him now, worship him now, thank him now, that in these moments of exile, in these moments where you feel alone, God is like, this is what I offer you. Come to me. I have overcome the world. Listen, come to Jesus, run to Jesus. It might not, he might not look like the answer now, but he is the king of kings. It might not look like it now, but it will be very clear one day. Come to him now though. Come to him now, receive him now, follow him now. Amen? Let's pray. Let's worship. The worship team's gonna come on up. Father, we just wanna thank you. We just wanna praise you. Lord, I ask that um, as we continue just to read through this, it just not be old stories that don't have a lot of meaning for today. We know that this is the word of God. It is living and powerful. God, it is your very breath. God, help us to receive this, to hear this. Thank you, Jesus, that you provide. God, that you will pardon us even when we act insane, (laughs) even when we blow it. God, thank you that you meet us in those cave moments where we feel alone, that you are a refuge. Father, we thank you that with you there is safekeeping. Lord, we need you. We look to you. We ask that you'd be lifted up, that you'd be glorified. God, that even just now as we sing to you, that you would remind us that Jesus is risen, that death has not had the last word, that Jesus, you are Lord of all. We look to you. We thank you that though you had nowhere to lay your head, Jesus, it was ultimately so we could have a bed with you in heaven. We could have a place, a home with you in heaven. And we just say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you go to prepare a place for us. Thank you that you are everything, everything we've ever needed. And so we look to you. We just want to praise you now. In your precious name, Jesus, amen. Church, let's stand and just close out and worship.